Hello and welcome to A Class Half Full, a legal podcast which looks at the class action system in Australia. My name is Douglas Campbell and I'm a Silk based in Brisbane. My co-presenter is Blair Hall, another Brisbane-based barrister. I think somewhat tediously over the past four episodes, I've been looking at just one way legislation in the courts have sought to protect group members from exploitation. You will recall that the dominant feature of the class action system is that it is an opt-out system, not an opt-in system. In other words, you're in unless you opt out. So you can be in a class action and know nothing about it or very little about it. Certainly, even if you know about it, you might only be be on the periphery. A class action has, of course, a lot of moving parts. There are funders, lawyers, experts, and particularly other group members who all may have different or slightly different objects and goals. Active group members may be out to get a result that best suits them or differs from what other group members may seek. Some group members may want the action to be over quickly, or they may want the type of loss that they suffered to be recognized in a particular way or in advance of other losses. And so it's necessary to ensure that there is balance and fairness between all group members those that are active, and those that are, well, less active. Initially, how this balance between all interested groups is maintained is through the opt-out notice. Knowledge is king, and an opt-out notice at least ensures that all group members are aware of the action. But an opt-out notice hardly acts as a genuine counterweight to ensure fairness and balance. It is perhaps a good start. The courts, however, have been more proactive than using just the opt-out notice to protect group members' interests. A settlement of a class action requires the sanction of the court so that the courts can ensure that the settlement is in the best interests of all group members. I'm going to look at the settlement process at a later time, but today I want to focus on one useful tool which is being used more frequently by the courts to assist them in determining the appropriateness of a settlement. And that is the appointment of a contradictor. I've never considered myself a logophile. Now I have to confess, I had to look that word up. But contradictor is a great word. It comes of course from the Latin, contra, against, dicto to speak. A contradictor is a person who speaks against or contradicts something. It's akin to someone playing the devil's advocate. It is useful to understand how, when and why a court will appoint a contradictor. In doing this, it's necessary to initially focus on what power the court has and the manner in which it is exercised. So can I use the federal court as an example? Since 1997, the federal court has general civil jurisdiction to hear all matters, effectively arising under any Commonwealth statute. 
What this means is that if a Commonwealth statute is involved in a dispute, the federal court will have jurisdiction to resolve the whole of the dispute or controversy, not, not just the aspect involving the federal legislation. So you will often see disputes which primarily involve contract or negligence, that is, common law claims, being determined in the federal court because in addition to those claims, there is also a claim, perhaps a, a minor claim, under Commonwealth statute. For instance, a claim for misleading and deceptive conduct or for a breach of the Corporations Act or the ASIC Act. These Commonwealth infractions open up to the parties the ability to use the federal court. Now, although I'm deviating slightly, and I'm told if there's one characteristic to this podcast, it's that of deviation. This is important because the class action jurisdiction in the federal court is well established with clear precedent and generally judges who are experienced in the area and whose rulings can be determined on occasions. This means that as a litigator, you're in a position where you can more easily predict what a court is likely to do or find. The same can be said for New South Wales and Victoria. But in other jurisdictions where class actions are relatively new, the difficulty faced by litigators is that how the matter is to be dealt with by the courts is unknown. Also, it's worth noting that there is developing some differences between the federal and state jurisdictions. How a problem is to be looked at and what result is likely can change between jurisdictions and, dare I say, judges. So picking the jurisdiction you're in or knowing how a matter is likely to be dealt with in that jurisdiction becomes important. I'm planning to do a podcast episode in the future on the difference between the various jurisdictions, but at the moment that's merely a gleam in my eye. But to get back on track and to the point at hand, commonly you will see that in the federal court, a claim is added which gives jurisdiction to that court and allows the whole action to be determined. To use an example, uh, one that I've mentioned before, the Aboriginal stolen wages class action in Queensland was brought in the federal court. It was essentially a trust case, which would normally be heard in the Supreme Court, but because there was also a claim under the Racial Discrimination Act, the federal court's jurisdiction was enlivened, and the whole action could be brought without challenge in the federal court. The same sort of reasoning applies to state jurisdiction. There may be, and indeed there is, some benefit these days for a class action to be brought in Victoria. In order for that to happen, there needs to be a basis in which at least one of the claims has a sufficient Victorian connection to allow commencement of the action in that jurisdiction. The action may, however, include breaches of Commonwealth statute, for example, a claim for misleading and deceptive conduct. But provided there is a sufficient jurisdictional connection for it to be brought 
in the Supreme Court of Victoria, the Commonwealth claim can be determined by that court. Now I apologise for that somewhat irrelevant deviation. A contradictor may not be a party to the action, but someone who ensures that the matters presented to the court are properly tested. So, although somewhat tangentially to what I've been talking about, to understand why a contradictor is required, I thought it may be useful to look at some examples, or at least one example. The case of Hick, Hicken and Carroll is a decision of the New South Wales Supreme Court concerning a will. Family disputes, of course, make the best litigation. This one involved a will where the deceased had left the residuary of, of his estate to certain of his children, depending upon them being baptised into the Roman Catholic Church within a period of three months from the date of his death. His children were all strong Jehovah Witnesses. The executor made inquiries from the Roman Catholic Archdiocese as to how long it would take for someone to be converted and to be baptised. And the answer was, generally speaking, it would take a period of time, certainly more than three months, normally. But the issue was somewhat vague, and there were certainly contradictory views expressed in, in certain writings. Based on this advice, the executor and all the beneficiaries asked the court to remove the clause requiring the conversion of the residual beneficiaries to the Roman Catholic Church from the will. So the judge was in a position where he was effectively given one side of the story, although the basis upon which all the parties agreed to this was provided. But the judge had difficulties because he thought that the evidence was vague and there were certainly legal arguments which supported some limiting bequests being held valid. In those circumstances, his honour appointed a contradictor, that is, someone who could argue on behalf of the beneficiaries that the clause ought to remain. The power of the court to appoint a contradictor is inherent. There are, of course, a number of practical difficulties, particularly who's going to pay. As they say, where there is a will, there's a way, and in the case I've just referred you to, the contradictor was paid for from the deceased's estate. In class actions, similarly, where the matter is settled, the cost of the contradictor can be paid out of settlement funds. So why would a court resort to using a contradictor in class actions? The answer is, it doesn't always do this, but it can, and there are a number of notable and ever-growing examples where it has. When a judge is faced with the settlement of a class action, there are a number of things he or she needs to consider. One is cost, another is the percentage to be paid to the funder, and a third perhaps most importantly, is the amount to be paid to group members and how that is to be done. In doing this, a judge is normally faced with a united front. 
The respondent, of course, is keen for it to settle because it is the one who has offered, to the, offered the settlement. There are no arguments there against it. So the natural opponent to the settlement, the natural contradiction, contradictor, in all cases is supportive of the settlement. Second, the applicant supports the settlement, of course, because uh, it, it also has agreed to it. Once again, there is no opposition there. Opposition, if at all, can come from group members who must be notified of a settlement. But group members are themselves unfunded and are likely to be unsophisticated litigators. They are not in a position to fully dissect or determine, for example, the appropriateness of legal costs incurred or how funds should be divided. So in such situations, the court has a number of tools available to it one tool being the appointment of a contradictor who can analyze and argue against a proposed settlement. Although every settlement of a class action has the same tensions, not every settlement requires the appointment of a contradictor. Often the lawyers themselves in furtherance of their primary duty to the court, a duty which is above the duty owed to their client, assist the court in reaching its determination. One way this is commonly done is by the provision to the court of an opinion by counsel with regard to the matter which sets out the party's view of the matter, warts and all. By such frank disclosure, a judge is able to at least determine whether the settlement amount is appropriate considering the risk that the applicant perceived it faced in proving its case. I know people may be cynical about the honesty and validity of such opinions, but they are taken very seriously by counsel. This is because a barrister's career hinges in part on his or her reputation with the court. A barrister must be in a position where his or her submissions are accepted and a court does not doubt or second-guess anything that's said to it. From that, it follows that an opinion given to the court must be honest, because if it is not, and if it is found to be not honest or fulsome, it can reflect on a, counsel, a counsel's career, and word goes about very quickly. So the system does work in that sense. In Australian Competition and Consumer Commission against NYS Technology, PTY LTD, there was concern about whether discretionary relief should be granted without a contradictor. The full court of the federal court found that a contradictor was not needed because they said there was a difference between having an interest to oppose the granting of declaratory relief and having that interest choosing whether or not to oppose the granting of that relief. So provided that the court has the benefit of the matter being tested, at least by a party who has an interest to oppose the order, 
a contradictor may not be needed. So today I've somewhat unexpectedly talked about why a contradictor is, a need, is needed generally and focused a little bit on why it is needed and used in class actions. Next week I want to focus particularly on class actions cases and I want to dig down into why a court will appoint a contradictor in a class action, when a contradictor has been used and the effectiveness of that use. Remember, the documents relating to this podcast can be found on the webpage www.aclasshalffullpodcast.com.au. I hope you'll join me next time. Well, the Class Half Full podcast shouldn't be construed as legal advice to be applied to any particular matter or dispute. Disputes invariably turn to their own facts, and specific advice should always be sought about those facts. The views that presenters expressed herein are their views alone. As always, there's no certainty in litigation.